If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Common land, which wasn't settled or farmed, used to exist right across Britain and provided a vital shared resource for local communities. However, it was also seen by some as a wild place for wild people, and over the centuries has been continuously improved or enclosed. Professor Angus Winchester has recently written a new book called Common Land in Britain, A History from the Middle Ages to the Present Day. And Dave Musgrove caught up with him to find out more about common land's rich and complex history. He began with a very simple question. What exactly was common land? There is a legal definition, and then there are sort of wider implications as well. Uh, The legal definition is fairly straightforward in in England and Wales. Uh, I should say that common land in England and Wales is different from common land in Scotland and different from common land in most parts of the continental Europe as well. But in England and Wales, common land is private land over which third parties have a right, a legal right, to take certain produce. So it's, it's, it's shared land in that sense, and usually a, a common is owned by one person or one institution, and several people will have the right to take produce, whether it's to graze animals on the common or to take other produce historically, um, from that, that land that belongs to another person. Okay. And there's also a sense that it's in some way wild land, so it's uncultivated. Is that Does that play into the story as well? Yes. The, the, I mean, the common land that survives today, uh, perhaps I should just say that, I mean, sometimes when people talk about commons and common land, they're thinking of the open field system that was widespread in, in England, well, before the, the, the 19th century, where land which was cultivated in the summer months was then shared commonly in the winter months by, by grazing animals. Uh, I'm not talking about that in my book. I'm talking about the other type of common land, which is basically the the wild, uncultivated land around the edges of settlements. In some senses, it's the empty land, if you like. Uh, So it's everything from mountain, moorland, heathland, marshland, fenland. Uh, Land which hasn't been fully appropriated into the uh, farming system in terms of being privately owned and intensively used or improved. So uh, it's it is this this wild, unimproved land. I say edge lands is one way to think of it. It's around the edges of settlements, and sometimes depending on where you are uh, in much of lowland England. There's comparatively little such land, but it will be around the edges near the parish boundaries, for example. Whereas if you go into uh, Fenland areas or indeed into upland areas, you often have the cultivated land sort of running out, as it were, when the environment dictates that the land can no longer be used intensively, whether that's going down into a, a marshy wetland or going upslope onto an uncultivable hill or mountain. 
Sure. Legally speaking, this this land is in some way owned, and I guess there are lots of different ways that it is owned. Is there anywhere in Britain, or was there anywhere in Britain, which was not actually owned by anyone? That's a very good question. And probably, I, I mean, whatever answer I give, I'm sure somebody would be able to come up with a, an example of the opposite. Generally speaking, certainly from the 13th century onwards, most land in Britain has belonged to someone. Um, I say from the 13th century onwards because in in England there was a very important uh, statute in 1236 known as the Statute of Merton, which basically said that the empty land around the edges of settlements, the, the residue of the manor, as the statute referred to it, belonged to the lord of the manor. So when you got the country divided up into manors, into manorial estates, uh, basically, the lord of the manor owns the common land within that boundary. I mean, there are continuing disputes about ownership of common land. That goes on for, for a very long time. Uh, and there are some places in England where the, the, the idea that it didn't belong to anybody is actually preserved in the name. So there are no man's land, for instance, and no man's heath. There are several such place names, which imply that, or conventionally at least, that was considered not to belong to any particular uh, lord. We'll come back to the Statute of Merton in a minute, if, if we could. I just want to take us back a little bit, if we can. Wait, so you, your book title is A History from the Middle Ages. Where, where do you start your story? And I suppose, when can we start to recognise common land in the landscape in the documentary record? I mean, if you take a very long view, uh, if you go way back to the prehistoric period, after all, we are an island, we're an island that was glaciated once the glaciers have gone uh, and people start moving in. Presumably at some stage, land didn't belong to anybody. And as settlements start to be uh, founded, then people will use the land around that settlement. But you could imagine that there is still, they're sort of islands in an, an unowned Uh, landscape. But gradually, as the landscape fills up, as settlements develop, the land used by settlements will tend to butt against each other. And when that happens, you presumably begin to get boundaries uh, between the bits of uh, wasteland belonging to different communities. My work really starts in the the Anglo-Saxon period in England, the early medieval period more generally. And by that stage, I think it's fair to say that most common land probably does belong to someone, not necessarily individually, but the idea of tribal territories where a number of settlements will share the resources of a, a number of different types of environment. That seems to be a picture that that emerges by the late Anglo-Saxon period. So that, for example, you will have a group of settlements which may share, you know, salt marshes down on the coast, uh, woodland inland, or in upland area, hill grazings up on the hills. So in that sense, there is a, a number of settlements which all probably fall under the sort of overlordship of a of some sort of tribal leader or, or major landowner who share the resources over quite a wide area. So that's the very beginning now, as you move through into the later Anglo-Saxon period and, and into the after the Norman Conquest, then these larger estates begin to fragment and you begin to get the rise of what is think, usually referred to as the manor, which you know conventionally uh, consists of a village and its lands. Although I should say there are numerous variants all over the country. If you think of that subdivision of these larger estates into smaller units... It's at that stage that you begin to get this notion of the lord of the manor being the person 
to whom the common land within the boundaries of that manor belongs. Okay, right. Now we've sort of covered the legal distinctions here and we'll keep them in mind as, as we carry on the conversation. I'm just trying to imagine an archetypal medieval manor. So you've got a unit of land and you've got maybe a medieval manor house where the Lord of the Manor lives. You've probably got a church of some sort. You've got the, the homes of the of the people who live there and you've got some sort of field system where they're doing their cultivation. And then outside of that, you've got, got the waste, as you described it, the places which are uncultivated but which there is some sort of shared ownership access to to those resources. So what sort of things would medieval people have been doing in the uncultivated common land? Yes, that's a very good question. And it's a very important question as well, because we tend to think, as I said a few minutes ago, we tend to think of common land as empty land. Uh, It's not and never has been unused land. The resources of the common are really complementary to the resources of the farmland. So in the farmland, you're growing your crops, you're growing your grass for your feeding animals over the winter. Out on the common, you are grazing your animals through the summer. It's important because, of course, it keeps the animals out of the growing crops. That's another you know, important part of function of common land. So grazing is you know, very important. Uh, but commons also provide a whole range of other resources. Most important of these is fuel, um, fuel for the fire. And this varies depending on the uh, environment. Uh, so a lot of lowland English commons would still have been wooded to a certain extent in the Middle Ages, and wood from the common would have been an important part of, of fuel. Even when the woodland has gone, uh, things like gorse or furs or whin, to give it its vernacular names, uh, that was a very important fuel right through into the 18th and 19th centuries. Where you haven't got woodland, you've often got peat, so in, in wetland areas, in fenland areas, people were digging peat, and indeed in upland areas like the Pennine Moors and so on, uh, and, and large areas of Scotland, peat was very important as a fuel. But then you also got building materials, for example, sods, stone, heather and bracken, which could be used as thatch, reeds, which could be used as thatch, of course, a whole range of building materials. And then other things as well, the various wild foods that could be gathered from commons. Those are fairly important. In wetland areas, you've got fish. In some areas, you've even got a right to take uh, animals, to take game, to take wildfowl, for example. So it varies very much depending on the environment and indeed depending on the custom of the manor, because the whole way that the community of a manor would use a common, um, although the framework was provided by the Statute of Merton, which said that the land belonged to the lord of the manor, but the tenants had a right to their common rights on it. Despite that, uh, at local level, how the common was actually used was determined by local custom. So let's drill into that a bit, a bit more, because that seems to me really interesting. So what sort of people would have been allowed to go into, into the waste and, and extract resources in the manner you've described? And what sort of rules and regulations would have been in place? I realise that's a very, there's, there's obviously going to be lots of different scenarios across the country. But, but broadly speaking, what, what, what sort of situation would have been in place? The typical pattern is that the tenants of the manor, that's by which is meant the landed tenants of the manor, in other words, the the farmers within the village, uh, would have the right to graze their animals on the common and to take those resources we've been talking about. There's a grey area when it comes to cottages, people without land, uh, but of course they needed fuel for the fire uh, and they often relied on the resources of the common to make some sort of a living. The rules that controlled how you use the common, I mean, there are two main sort of questions that come up when you immediately you have the idea of common rights. One is how much produce can you take? And the other is who has the rights to take it? As I say, the grey area of who has the rights to take it is among those who don't actually hold land, who just have a house. With the question of 
how much of the produce could you take from the common. There are really quite tight rules that are found quite generally uh, concerning how much grazing you could take, in other words, how many animals you could put on the common grazings. And there are two broad principles here. One is, and this is found broadly across all parts of Britain and indeed across continental Europe as well, a general rule which in English law comes down as common without number. In other words, there's no specific um, numerical limitation on the number of animals you can put out. But the rule is that you can only put out onto the common in the summer as many animals as you can keep on the produce of your farm across the winter. So it sort of matches the extent of your right to grazing on the common to the size, or strictly speaking, the productivity of your holding, as expressed in the number of animals you can keep over the winter. And that's a rule that's found uh, widely across Europe. It's known as the, the rule of hay and straw in continental Europe. And in English law, it goes by a wonderful name. It's the rule of levency and cushioncy. Uh, you could only keep as many animals on the common in summer as you could keep on your farm uh, in the winter. Very importantly, on the produce of your farm. In other words, you shouldn't be buying in winter feed for them. It was what you could produce from your farm. So that's one broad principle. The second principle for, for uh, controlling grazing numbers is what's called stinting, where the number of animals you could put on the common is uh, regulated by a specific number. And broadly speaking, if we take a long view, stinting tends to become more common and common without number, governed by the rule of Levency and Cushioncy, becomes less common across the later Middle Ages and into the, uh, the post-medieval centuries. The broad principle governing pasture rights is more or less the same when it comes to other uh, rights or rights to other produce on the common. Two things, really. One is they're there for necessary use. You can't go out onto the common and, you know, dig a whole load of peats, take it to the local market town and sell it. it. You can dig your peat to use on your fire. It's for necessary use. And the produce is not to be taken out or, or sold out of the manor. So what sort of strictures were in place if somebody broke those rules? What would have happened if somebody went and dug more peat than was obviously required? Yeah, the institution that's, that managed these rules was the manor court. And so if you uh, broke the rules in some way, you would be presented at the manor court. And usually you would be, you would suffer some sort of financial penalty. Uh, you were breaching the Lord's rules, really. Um, and so you, you owed uh, a fine to the Lord. So the manor courts are the bodies that, that govern this. The manor courts in England and Wales, the, the barony court, which is the equivalent uh, in Scotland, these are the bodies which determine how they, they write the rules in detail at local level and they determine the penalties and they monitor the keeping of those rules and present offenders uh, through the court and, and find them. So these resources were clearly important to everybody living in a manor. It was very important for them to be able to access them. If they couldn't get the, the wood and, and peat for their fuel, then obviously they would have uh, very cold winters. So one imagines they were keen to make sure that other people didn't exploit them, which rather um, begs the question about boundaries and, and how um, uh, outsiders were prevented from accessing these resources. What can you say about that? Well, yes, one, once you begin to get the, as I say, the breakdown of these larger, uh, later Anglo-Saxon estates into small, smaller manors, then clearly the boundaries be between manors become very important. And it's really from that, once that happens, that you begin to get, well, 
we know about it through the disputes, of course, where, where the boundaries cause problems. But you, you increasingly get boundary markers across the common, because very often the commons of one manor would lie adjacent to and, and contiguous to the commons of another manor. And the boundary between the two might take the line of, uh, it usually wouldn't be some sort of a, it wouldn't be a bank in many cases or, or a ditch. It would probably be something like a, you know, a particular tree, a particular stone, a particular old prehistoric cairn or whatever. Uh, that would be the boundary between between the two, and once that was determined as being you know, accepted on both sides as being the boundary between the two commons, then anybody crossing over that boundary is infringing the rights of whichever lord. Now, if you can imagine, you've got grazing animals grazing a common either side of that boundary. They're not going to know about that boundary. They're not going to know that that particular old prehistoric cairn there is the boundary between the manner of A and the manner of B. Um, so what tends to happen is that you get agreements whereby people are allowed to have what in legal terms is known um, uh, by the old French term, common of vicinage, or uh, to use the more vernacular term, people will pay a sum of money uh, known as overleap, where their animals leap over that unmarked boundary across the common. So they will pay a small sum to the lord of the manor where their animals are, technically speaking, trespassing. Beyond that, though, if people try to put their animals from further afield onto a common, then yes, the, the lords of the manor are come down with uh, like a ton of bricks on them, and they'll be presented at the manor court uh, as for grazing illegally. So clearly, the way where you've outlined it in the medieval period, these were important resources, and, and and most manners, most people would have had access in some way to these resources. But over time, that access starts to become limited. Can you just sort of chart that story and how um, access to common land begins to die away as as your story progresses? As I said earlier, the, the grey area about who has rights on a common uh, applies particularly to those who don't have land. And as population levels rise uh, in the 16th century and again from the 18th century onwards, a lot of the, the, the increased population in rural areas is, of course, landless. It's people who don't actually have access to land. So the question is, do they have rights or not? And broadly speaking, uh, you can see that the law tries to limit them. Uh, there's a famous case in the early 17th century, uh, which says that you can't have a right on the common unless you actually have a legal right to the property you own. So if you were, for instance, a lodger or, or, or somebody temporarily in, in, in a place, you don't have a common right. Now, that's the law, but in practice, it doesn't seem to make that much difference. Commons remain a very important part of the life of the poor uh, throughout the early modern period, uh, whatever the law says. But there's a increasing sense from the 17th century onwards that commons are a problem. And they're a problem partly because they are untamed wild land, which really is an affront to the nation. It ought to be improved. You know, it's this, we haven't done our job properly. It's lying out there. It hasn't been improved. It hasn't been reclaimed. And sort of going alongside that is the idea that commons are wild places full of wild people who also need taming. So there is a sort of a growing body of pressure to, uh, well, basically to enclose common land, to privatise the land and to dispossess um, those who, who, who use it without a formal common right. And that's the beginning of the whole enclosure process, which gathers pace across the 18th century. So that very large numbers of acres of common land has been estimated something like uh, possibly 2.3 million acres uh, of common waste in England are enclosed between about 1750 and about 1860. A huge attack on common land. 
which takes it away from those who use it without a, a, a formal right. And I stress that without a formal right, because a lot of the literature, a lot of the sort of popular ideas of the history of land in England are to do with how the commons were stolen from the people. That's a very strong theme, and it run, runs right the way through to the present day. Um, it's slightly more complicated than that. Certainly, the people who didn't have a, co- a formal right, a lot of the poor, uh, they were dispossessed because once common land has been divided up, enclosed, privatised, they were thrown off. So the people who relied, for example, uh, on a bit of bit of peat, perhaps, uh, maybe digging, uh, maybe taking various produce to make basic things like besoms or baskets or whatever from the from the common land, they were suddenly dispossessed. But most people, those who had a common right, they would have be granted a section of the common in lieu of their right. So the enclosure process is basically dividing that bigger open area of common land uh, between the people who have legal rights. So that's the lord of the manor on the one hand, and the tenants who have their common rights of pasture, of, of digging peat and, and taking wood and so on, uh, on the other. There is a, a gradual process of speeding up as you get through to the sort of late 17th and through the 18th and early 19th century, of the removal of common land, and indeed the, I think the best term to use is really privatisation of common land, where uh, instead of it being a shared resource, it becomes that the former common is divided into bits which become the exclusive property of the person to whom they're allocated. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So that process, as you've described, very bad for the poor, for the people at the bottom of society, not so bad for the middling classes and, 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 the, and the landowners. The whole sort of attitude, the, the, from a historian's point of view, uh, the way in which this has been explained, has, has the, the accent has shifted uh, across the 20th century. So in the early 20th century, the, the, the view that, it, that the commons were, that poor robbed of the commons was very, very strong. And that continued through most of the, the, the middle decades of the 20th century. But then from about the 1960s, there was a view, well, hang on, okay, it was enclosing the land, but the in, enclosure process at the time, of course, of the Industrial Revolution, meant that there were masses of, of, of employment opportunities for the poor and that actually it, it wasn't a bad thing for them. Now, more recently, people have, have started looking again and have started realising, I think, how important common land was to the poor and how although the legal systems did actually protect the poor to a certain extent. So, for example, in a lot of commons, in, in particularly in lowland England, where you've got uh, a community of, of poor people who, say, relied on the common for their fuel, it wasn't, from the enclosure perspective, it wasn't worth giving each of those poor families a tiny, tiny bit of the common in order to go and dig their fuel. So what they did was to give, uh, to allocate part of the common as a continuing fuel resource for that, for the poor in that community, so there were attempts to protect the poor, but I think the the sheer importance of common land to the poor is now recognised again, and the uh, removal of so much common land clearly must have had a well, we know had a big I- impact uh, on the poor. 
Now, we, we talk quite a lot about sort of uh, uses of, of, of common land for extraction, for, for day-to-day things. But in your book, you also outline some other activities that would have gone on in common land. Um, you talk about um, how they were used for sport and recreation and also political dissent. I wonder if you could just give us a little flavour of, of some of the other activities that might have been going on on common land. Yes, commons, I mean, we, we tend to think, you know, legally, you would tend to think of the people with the common rights going out there onto the common with their animals, digging their peat and so on. But the, the idea that common Commons belong to communities, never goes away. Uh, And really, from the Anglo-Saxon period onwards, we can see commons being used as a place for communal gatherings. It's part of, in fact, the whole sort of fabric of Anglo-Saxon society, the idea that uh, public meetings, public gatherings, were part of the glue that held society together. And a lot of those meetings took place on common land. The Hundred Courts, for example, uh, of later Anglo-Saxon England, where the the community of a hundred, which was a sort of subdivision of a county, they would meet at a particular place, often on common land, often at a remote from, from settlements. Uh, that's there right at an early date. You get execution sites on, on commons, uh, again, uh, representing power and authority. You also, by the early modern period, have uh, beacons on common land as part of a, a system of defence, system of uh, early warnings, uh, fire beacons located on, on common land on hills. And commons are also the places where the militia are mustered. So all the militia from a particular area will be required to present themselves with their arms on a section of common land on on certain dates. So so commons are, are used commonly from a sort of formal point of view. But then the communal use of commons extends way beyond that. So, I mean, from a day-to-day perspective, people in a village with a bit of common land on the, out on the edge of the village, that would be, in a way, their playground. It would be the place where children would play, where teenagers would roam and so on. Um, and as an extension of that, uh, it tends to be the place, for example, where fairs are held, where sports are held. We have, you know, th- there are early references, for example, to to cricket being held on common land in the 16th century. Uh, golf becomes a very important uh, aspect of common land, particularly in Scotland, from the from the 16th century. And perhaps the most important, uh, certainly most widespread uh, sport on common land from the um, probably from the Middle Ages, but it comes into focus from the middle of the 16th century, is horse racing. Uh, so you have race courses on common land around towns in particular, but not a, not only around towns. There are numerous race courses, for instance, across Cumbria, which is not exactly an, an urban county uh, in the 17th century. In fact, it's said that virtually all the commons uh, in the Eden Valley around Appleby in Westmoreland had a race course on them. So uh, horse racing is, is, again, part of the, the life of common land. Commons are also extremely important for trade. Now, this is an economic use. It's not an economic use like the agrarian uses we were talking about a few minutes ago, but but it is an important uh, economic use, particularly for li- for livestock fairs, because you needed obviously a fairly large area of of uncultivated land in order to gather animals uh, and show them uh, for for trade, and so you get some very very substantial livestock fairs which which deal with the the livestock over quite large regions. I mean, there was one in Hampshire, the Wayhill Fair outside Andover, which was extremely important and was a huge fair, bringing in animals from across the south of England uh, and trading as well in things like joinery and basketry and um, uh, leather and 
hops and a whole range of other produce. So these big regional fairs uh, on common land, sometimes near towns, but sometimes way out in the middle of nowhere. There was a a very important one in the north of England called the Rosley Hill Fair near Wigton uh, in Cumberland, which served as a regional fair for the whole of the sort of northern England, southern Scottish area uh, for livestock, but also for linen. So they all had their specialisations and they were often cited, as I say, on common land, sometimes in quite remote commons. And then finally, there's a whole other area of of use of common land, which is an extremely interesting one and goes back to the the Middle Ages, uh, where people who are dissenting in some way from the authorities use commons as places to gather. And we can see this um, famously, for example, in the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, where the peasants gather on Black Heath just outside London, a common just outside London. Or indeed, by the 16th century, uh, where you get Ket's Rebellion in, in, in East Anglia, for example, in 1549, where Ket and his, his rebels uh, basically, well, as it was put by a contemporary, in kennel themselves. They, they, they set up a, a camp on Mousehold Heath uh, outside Norfolk. So commons are being used uh, by dissidents. And they're often um, mirroring the use of the commons by the authorities. So that, for example, in the Pilgrimage of Grace, which of course was a big um, uh, insurgency across the the north of England in 1536, um, the insurgents in each wapentake, as they were called, the equivalent of the hundreds further south, were required to meet uh, on a particular common, often the same common, where the militia would have been mustered by the authorities. So it's, it's almost like a, like a sort of subversion of the, um, the the formal use of common land by the authorities, uh, by these political dissidents. And it continues right through to the Chartists in the in the mid nineteenth century. They meet on commons on quite a lot of the the big uh, uh, commons in the in the Pennines, for example, but also commons like uh, Kennington Common on the outskirts of London. And it's not just political dissent, there's also religious dissent. People who are, in one sense or another, outsiders often make their way to common land. From the 17th century, it's often the Quakers and the Covenanters in Scotland who can be seen as religious outsiders who use common land for their gatherings. So we know that, well, in the 1650s, um, the MP for the County of Cumberland, for example, talked about how his county was plagued by Quakers who meet in multitudes and upon moors, as he says. Um, And that's because there are a number of open-air meetings of Quakers uh, in that county uh, at that time. The Covenanters in southern Scotland are similar. They're persecuted, really very severely persecuted by the authorities, and they meet out in the hills of Galloway and in the southern uplands. Um, and because of the persecution and because of the martyrdom of quite a lot of the of the Covenanter preachers, parts of southern Scotland you will find monuments put up in the 19th century to the places where the Covenanters met out on the hills. So on all those fronts, uh, dissent, both religious and political, uh, trade, sport, just sort of day-to-day recreation. Commons belong, in a sense, to communities, whatever the legal niceties about the common rights on commons, which are essentially uh, invested in individuals. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for for that um, that review of all the interesting things that went on 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 commons. It's, it feels like they're they're much more important than perhaps we recognise today when we when we have these uh, quite set ideas about ownership of, of land and the like. Before I finish up, I just wanted to be clear. You've talked quite a lot about uh, how there were differences between the the situation, the legal situation in England and elsewhere in Britain. 
I assume though that the the sort of the broad trend of the description you've outlined there would would cr- go across all of Britain in terms of of usage of of common land. Yes, in terms of usage, I mean there are different legal systems in Scotland and in, indeed in medieval Wales, but in terms of shared uh, grazing ground the various resources like fuel and other building materials and so on, they are taken from common land in Scotland as they are uh, in England. Different terms are used because of the different legal system, but very similar practices go on. It seems to me today we're very worried about the environment, uh, ecology, and and how the, how land is used. And it seems like there's lots of lessons to be learned from how this wasteland, the, this common land, was used in the past, both in terms of how people cooperated and used land in a sensible way, and also I assume managed it in a sustainable way. Are there any lessons there that you can imagine, or do you feel that we should just take this for the history itself? No, I think there are lessons because the essence of common land. I mean. Perhaps just to, to put it into a bit of context, although there is this huge reduction in the amount of common land uh, during the period of enclosure that I was talking about a few minutes ago, there are still uh, 2.7 million acres of common land uh, in Britain. So it's still really quite a substantial part of Britain is, is common land. And, and throughout history, you've got this tension when it comes to common land, the tension between how do you uh, balance individual rights and individual interests with the common good. And that seems to me the the, the thing that runs through the history of common land. Now, when you then put on top of that the way in which different people have different meanings of common land, or or put it the other way around, common land has different meanings to different people, um, and that those meanings change over time, it becomes quite a complicated process. But just to sort of look at it broadly, you know, if you think at at basics, you've got common land as an agrarian resource used by local communities, managed by local communities. You then, from the 17th century through the 18th and into the early 19th century, got this great rising tide of of what we might term improvement uh, literature, which says that commons are wasted land, they need to be improved, they need to be reclaimed. That sees the reduction of common land, but it's it's very definitely a different view of what common land is and what it means. And then from the middle of the 19th century, from around about the 1860s, the meaning of common land changes again and changes quite rapidly and quite and quite dramatically. Instead of land waiting to be improved, its land or the common land that survives is seen as land which needs to be preserved. It's a bit of the case of, you know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. So much common land has gone uh, that what is left uh, needs to be preserved. And this begins in the 1860s with the, the whole idea of recreational access. And it's particularly focused on the commons around London where the, 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 the use of the commons as a lung to uh, urban populations becomes a really important driving force, which in effect stops uh, enclosure of further commons, to cut a long story very short. Um, so that from the 1860s onwards, the protection of common land for public recreation is a particularly uh, strong theme. And even from that point, but increasingly across the 20th century, the recognition of the ecological value of this untamed land, this wild land, that becomes important as well. So that by the time you get to the position we're at today, most commons are seen as valuable land for the purposes of nature conservation. A very large proportion of the surviving common land is one way or another protected by the state whether it's you know lying within a national park, whether it's as a site of special scientific interest uh, or whatever. So there are these layers of environmental protection uh, on top of the you know the traditional legal 
uh, balance of rights between the, the lord and the, the tenants. So increasingly, the public good is seen as the dominant force. And when you look at how commons are managed today, whether you're talking about upland commons, which are still used for grazing, and where overgrazing has been seen as a real problem, uh, and numbers of, been, of grazing animals have been brought down by a series of agri-environment schemes over the last sort of, 20 years or so, or whether it's lowland commons where grazing more or less, in many cases, declined and, and disappeared by the middle decades of the 20th century, uh, with the result that, that woodland basically uh, sprang up, so that you have a lot of lowland commons are now wooded again. Um, but in both cases, managing those commons for nature conservation is now really one of the main themes of how common land is used. But again, all the way through that, you're having to balance the interests of the people with the legal common rights, the people who, of course, still use commons in many parts of Upland uh, and Western Britain, uh, where grazing is still used on common land. You have to balance those rights with, if you like, the public interest in uh, recreation and in conservation. That was Professor Angus Winchester. His book, Common Land in Britain, A History from the Middle Ages to the Present Day, is available now from Boydell and Brewer. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Mm-hmm.